Hi, this is Dave Steinberg, and welcome back to the Mortgages Made Easy podcast. I am so delighted to have Patrick Lilly uh, as our guest. Patrick is one of the heroes of the mortgage uh, business. Uh, uh, sorry, let me take that back. Patrick is one of the heroes of the real estate business. Uh, he and I were just talking as we warmed up, and he probably coaches 20 to 25 of the top realtors in the country as to how to do business better and smarter. And so I thought we could get tap into some of that wisdom, Patrick. Great, well, thanks for having me on. You want me to just start talking? Yeah. Okay, good. So I would say, first of all, you know, studies show that um, real estate brokers who have a coach and are being coached are much more successful uh, across the board than uh, agents and brokers who do not have a coach. Uh, then the question becomes, well, what's the right coach for you? Because there's so many different types of coaching out there. So for instance, um, if you're a large team and you're trying to grow your business and to manage your systems and to um, uh, 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 look for ways of making your agents more successful and maybe you want to work less, you really need to work with one of the coaches that that really does that all the time, that they, they've got another 15, 20 clients or more that are large teams and they're looking to be more efficient and to grow their business. Um, uh, the needs of a large team are much different than the needs of a small team or a partnership or an individual. So, um, for example, um, there's a lot of coaches who do uh, who focus on large team management. When I say large team, I'll say at least six people and, and above, and they get a lot larger than that um, because their needs are very much different from the needs of a smaller team or a partnership. Um, the so that would be the first way I would try to find a, a coach. The second thing that I would look at is um, uh, what are my goals, you know, and then try to find a coach that aligns with that. You know, if systems is where you're failing and systems is where you're running short, um, then let's find a coach who's good at systems. If lead generation is where your problem is, then Let's find a coach who has lots of clients who are not having problems generating leads. That's always a good way to decide which coach to go with. And then we're going to talk about, for me, my clients that I do best with are ones that, you know, they have their systems in place. They don't need to be held accountable, um, but their minds, not their minds, that their thought process is holding them back, that their limiting thoughts or how they're viewing a situation is keeping them back from being the greatest potential that they can be as an agent, as a person. So I found that the coaching clients that I work best with um, are they have all the skills that they need. Maybe they're missing some skills. Maybe they're missing some systems. But I need to change the way they think and the way they perceive themselves in the market and their team in order for them to grow. So 
one, I'm good at that, but two, it gives me a great deal of pressure to see people change their thought process because it lines up with with what I feel is one of my uh, purposes in life is to help people make those changes. So you could see, Dave, I think, how that those three things are, uh, those three types of coaches are very different and some are going to be better than others for you. So for instance, if you want somebody to hold you accountable, I'm not your guy. I don't want to do it. I'm not interested. You know, I want people who can hold themselves accountable or that they hire another coach to hold themselves accountable. Let me give you a classic example of somebody who uses all three types of coach. Paula Clark, as you know, Paula is a really great broker in Bergen County in New Jersey. And she, her team just keeps on growing and growing and growing. She's the top broker in her office now and in her, in her MLS. Um, it's been a joy to watch her grow. She has three different coaches. She has a coach that works um, uh, her, her accountability, her um, systems, that sort of thing. Then she has the secondary coach who helps run her team for her. And then she has me who comes in and holds their yearly advances. And I meet with them a couple other times of the year to work on getting their heads all together on the same page so that we're working on a common goal. And, you know, um, what I do, I do really well, but what the other coaches do, do exceptionally well and do better than I could. And I think Paula's got a really good solution on how to grow her business to, to reduce the amount of time she works to help her team make more money across the board for everybody and um, and for them to reach their goals each year, it's 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 a really smart system of not just limiting yourself to one coach. Mm. So, what are some of the issues you think realtors face in twenty twenty three? In in twenty twenty three, well, I think you know it's a couple of things. I think um, it's obviously going to be market by market. You know, we're seeing in the East Coast that the Northeast specifically, the market's still relatively strong. You know, um, my sales, I also sell real estate. My sales in New York City are, are really strong, and as is the Hudson Valley. Uh, we're seeing Boston is strong. So an inventory is still down in a lot of those areas. So getting leads, getting good buyers, getting good listing leads is, you know, probably the most important thing across the board. So, but Dave, you could argue that that's always been the most important thing is, is the quality of your leads and how you're converting them. So um, I feel like, at least from my perspective with my coaching clients, you know, we're doing a lot of old school stuff, which surprises me because I always like technology and I always like new things. But the things that really seem to be working across the board are direct mail and picking up the phone and calling. And then um, looking at your relationship to your clients as a consultant rather than as a sales agent um, and developing that deep relationship of being a consultant um, and really caring about what their needs are uh, 
as opposed to a short-term sale. Um, I think those are those elements that people are being most successful with. And the last thing I'd say on this topic is don't do what everybody else is doing, unless you're picking up the phone, please do that. But I don't think everybody's picking up the phone. Um, um, and I don't think that many people are doing direct mail as I think they should be doing because it is so successful. Um, but do what other people are not doing because anything that helps to separate you from the competition is a good thing. And lastly, you know, when you get out into real estate conferences and coaching, there are like a million things you can do to sell real estate to help you improve your business. Don't spread yourself thin. Don't like you don't need to be on every social media. You don't need to do everything that Sally, who's in the your next MLS system, and uh, she's doing really well. You don't need to do everything that works for her. You need to do what you do well, what you feel good about, and what you can track the numbers that they're turning into conversions on deals. Um, uh, I would say those are my biggest keys for twenty twenty three. And, you know, what I like is, and I've observed it in person over the years working together with you, you know, the first of all, you do what you preach. Uh, the There's, I think, the first big, huge gap between great realtors and not great realtors is what you said, the the fact that a great realtor serves the needs of their client and a not great realtor sells them real estate or sells their real estate. Um, so I love the fact that you, you come at it as a consultant and you you care about the people first and the transaction second. One of the biggest things that I've learned earlier in my career, so before I was really committed to staying in real estate, I was doing really well, but you know, I was just like, I thought I'd go into some sort of consulting, commercial consulting. And um, at that, the first 12 years of my career, it was like, what's the least amount of work I can do to get the job done and to move on to the next deal? Um, and then when I decided, no, I was really committing to, to residential real estate and that I was good at it. And this is, this is my niche. Um during the subsequent 10 years after that, it was like learning, no, that's not a real rewarding way for me to deal with my clients. It just didn't, it felt, it felt very um, transactional. And um, that personally wasn't rewarding. I mean, the money was, but the, the, um, the relationships were not. And consequently, some of them, when they went to sell again or buy again, didn't come back to me, which was a real eye opener because, you know, I thought I did a great job and maybe I did, but I obviously didn't. If they went to somebody else in terms of staying in touch, I didn't. And um, when I finally realized that this is about consulting versus transactional sales, the quality of my relationships improved. Um, my income improved too, but most importantly, my joy improved. I was really enjoying the process a whole lot more. And when you're happy with what you're doing, you know, you're going to make more money and you're going to be more successful and people are going to want to be around you more. Mm. 
So if you were going to give uh, some advice to, let's say, a someone who's five or so years in the business, a successful realtor, but they're ready for the next step, what, other than getting a coach, because you said that, but what advice do you have for that realtor? Um, I'd look at um, where did their where did the source of their deals come? How did they generate their deals? Where were those leads from? And then figure out well that's working. How can I do more of that? Mm-hmm. How can I put more money or energy into those leads so I can develop more leads similar to that? Because I find people feel like in general they've um, you know, they they feel like they've maxed out that sort of thing and they always look for new sources of leads and you kind of stretch yourself a little too thin. Look at what works and then try to maximize that and see how you can grow that. I would say a little bit of analysis can lead to a really smart use of your money, budgeting both money and time. You know, I, I, I have told people... Um, many, many times to just go back and identify their five favorite clients over the past year or two, and then look at where those clients came from, what the activities were that attracted those clients, and then do more of that. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And you don't even have to do, you don't have to do the number analysis that way. That would be a really quick in a heartfelt way to get to where to put your energy. Um, but it's kind of nice to have the number analysis too. So mm-hmm. it'd be nice because I suspect they'll support each other. So Patrick, would you mind sharing a couple of mistakes that you yourself have made? Well, I, I'm glad you said just a couple because it, <laughs> I could do... I could do a, a whole uh, I could do a whole day podcast on that. Look, so let me first say that mistakes are good um, in that your greatest learning comes from your or has the potential to come from your mistakes. And um, and I believe that strongly. So like if you're on my team and you make a mistake, um, I don't ever get upset about it. I really don't. You know, I, 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 I've made ahead that we all make mistakes. And as long as you learn from it, then I'm cool. Um, if you make this mistake a second time, the same mistake, then we're going to sit down and we're going to have a, I'm going to boost you after the first mistake. On the second one, we're going to sit down and I'm going to say, why didn't you, what happened that you didn't learn from the last mistake? Because I find this disappointing. And I also let them know if the mistake happens a third time, they'll be off the team Um, because I want people who can learn and grow. So, you know, we set up the expectation on our team to function that way. And I feel like it's a really healthy, smart way to function and uh, makes people less frightened of making an error and letting them know that errors are good. In terms of my own mistakes, oh my God. Sorry. Oh, hi, let me call you back, okay? Thank you. Um, sorry about that. 
um, you're up to in terms of my own mistakes. Yeah. So in terms of my own mistakes, boy, I've made quite a few. Um, earlier on in my career, every new bubble, every new technology that would come my way, every new, you know, doing something different, I would be the first adapter and I would adapt it and I'd go after it. And um, thinking, oh, this could be really fun. This will help separate me. This would be something different. And in retrospect, one of the things that I've learned is it's unless it's a real outlier, being a first adapter is not a good thing. Let's let's see how other people do with it so you can have some track records. Because I spent a lot of money and time on being a first adapter on a lot of technologies and systems that in retrospect uh, was a waste of time, a waste of money, and I wish I hadn't done it. So I'm not sure being a first adapter works for the vast majority of things. There are some exceptions to the rule. And one of the things I've enjoyed immensely over the years is the, the Rev conferences. And what I've personally found as a mortgage guy at a real estate conference, but what I've personally found is that the shared wisdom of hanging out with really good people is... Um, is is very very powerful in, in you know your role in pulling rev together and um, pulling the rev community together has been incredibly powerful. Tell us a little bit about your team. How is your team structured? We're we are down to two people now. So I have consciously at my biggest I was at six. This is fascinating, Dave. So. When my team was at my biggest and we were doing our biggest production, we were doing um, about our biggest year, I think it was 112 million. Um, and we had several years over 100 million. And I had between six and seven people on my team. This past year, we had two people on my team. And um, just to be clear, it's you plus one or you plus two? Jasmine, me plus one. And we did between 60 and 70 million this past year. You can imagine my profitability is much higher than when I was doing, um, you know, over 100 million. And uh, one of the reasons I know that's because I just saw my tax bill. <laughs> so it's a lot of money. Paying taxes and, is a good thing. I mean, yeah, yeah. Money. Exactly. And um, the trouble is, it sits in your account while you still have it. You, you have to realize that's not really my money. Um, um, so we've got it down to now that I've gotten to the point where I'm really, and I work, I do this with my coaching clients. I'm really interested in profitability and the best use of my time. So, you know, when I'm at 100 million plus, I'm always on the list of the top brokers in the city. Um, at my level now, you know, at 60 million, I'm not going to be on those lists anymore. But the fact of the matter is, is I'm making more money, I'm happier, and I don't need my ego fed like I used to need it when I was earlier in my career. So, uh, I'm really big on looking at profitability. And I think that's, you know, you go through certain stages in your life. And for me earlier, it was important for me to reach that $100 million number. Um, at some point, I realized 
you know, it's just a number. It doesn't really, you know, it makes me feel good about myself and it makes me, other people say, oh, he's a top broker. But I wish people would look at their net numbers and you'd see how many people over a hundred million are making less than me. So um, it's interesting. Mm. And, and, you know, I think at the end of the day, that's a very powerful thing because what I'm hearing you say is that you've reached a level in your career where you're pursuing your joy. Yes. And you're, you're serving your clients profitably without putting as much focus on the ego piece. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, I'm also willing to, if I'm finding a client to be um, difficult, and they're being unreasonable in their difficultness, is that a word? Um, I'm very quick to let them go. Um, I want to treat them as they want to be treated, but I want them to treat me with the same respect. Mm, I get it. And I got, you know, I have, you know, as opposed to a new agent, I got plenty of money in the bank. So, you know, I don't need that next deal. Mm -hmm. I would like the next deal, but I don't need it. And it makes a difference in, in my relationship with my clients. So let's, let's get down to the closing. And let me say, give me two or three takeaways for that realtor who's five years into their career, they're, they've learned the ropes and now they want to grow. What are two or three things you would tell that, that realtor? Well, from this conversation, number one, I'd look at your profit. I'd look at where your leads are coming from. What's the profitability on each lead, meaning um, what's the overall dollars earned and what what was the cost of those dollars earned? Um, and, you know, you only have to do this once a year. This is not, I mean, you can just put it into an Excel program and or a Google Doc and um, have it all figured out for you. Um but I would be aware of that and then look at the cost of a lead and what's going to generate the greatest profitability for you and, and move ahead from there. So I'm finding that um, most of my coaching clients that are highly profitable are, are doing, you know, uh, they have like 65 to 75% profit on their gross income, which a lot of brokers, it's just reverse. It's like 33% profit. And um, so that would be number one. Number two, I would say, look at what brings you joy. You know, you're, you're going to, whatever brings you joy, do those things and then if if you're if, if some of the other things are really not bringing you joy, can you delegate them or shift them off to somebody else from the outside to do them? And if you can't do that, if you still need to do things that you find are um, unenjoyable, see if there's a way you can turn it into a game and make it fun. Like give yourself treats if you do X, Y, and Z. And then... As we talked earlier throughout this, you know, 
um, hire a coach. And it doesn't have to be a big commitment. You can hire them if you don't have, a, you know, if you're a little tight on money, you can hire it. Um, uh, one on a like every two or three weeks, if or even once a month, if you want to. And um, and also, if if you're an individual and you haven't hired an assistant to help you with administrative stuff and running around. Um, that's your really first big item to grow is is having a an assistant where you can delegate uh, uh, non productive dollar behaviors to. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I I love that. I I often tell my clients um, or my realtor friends to think about things in terms of the value of an hour of their time. Yeah, so so many people don't stop to think that. What's an hour of your time worth? Is it worth $25 an hour or is it worth $500 an hour? And if you- Yeah, it's a simple simple thing. Look at what your gross income is, divide by the number of hours you think you work in a year and that you come your daily rate. So let's say it's, let's say it's 250 an hour. Um, You know, is it worth you- uh, faxing a contract to somebody at $250 an hour, or is it worth having an assistant do that? And, you know, that's a pretty obvious one. And are things like, well, what are things that are worth $250 an hour? Well, uh, uh, generating leads is worth it. Uh, Getting on the phone and generating new buyers or talking to uh, your sphere of influence is worth it. Negotiating contracts of sale. It may be worth it to show high-end property. It may not be worth it to show low-end property. You know, it's 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 the items that you need to figure out or what are, what are a good use of your time. So, like even something like you know, I found that holding luxury open houses, which so many brokers don't want to do an open house, they have such a bad attitude about them is a really good use of my time because um, clients are going to see or buyers are going to see all these open houses. And um, usually the head broker is not there on the team. It's, you know, one of the lower agents and you can tell the difference, you know, just from experience. So when they see me working in open house and how I'm dealing with everybody, they get an idea who I am. I can't tell you how many listings I've gotten by doing that and how many buyers I've gotten because they're like, oh, this is different. This is somebody that's the next step up. So again, that's worth my time where other agents might look at and say it's not worth their time. Thank you so much, Patrick. I oh, really appreciate it. I've always found you to be a wise friend and um, we look forward to continuing with this conversation. This has been the Mortgage Made Easy podcast and thank you guys so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.